Well, a few weeks ago, I began a new series, a series that I'm calling By One Sacrifice. And today I want to add yet another message into that series, a message that I'm calling Our Perfection in Christ. Friends, that language should be the wallpaper of every human heart. You want to know why? Because man cannot find true rest. He cannot find constant rest until he is convinced in his heart that the Father sees him as perfect and acceptable apart from his performance. I want you to underline that in your heart this morning. The Father always sees you as perfect. He always sees you as acceptable in his heart apart from our performance. And that's precisely what I want to visit with us about a little bit this morning as I administer this message, our perfection in Christ. We find the revelation of our perfection in Christ in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verse 14. This is my favorite verse of the Bible. I've ministered it many times. But a little bit later in the message, we're going to bring in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18 because I want us to see how Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice brought about what we call the new covenant. It's a covenant whereby our sins, I love this part, and our lawless acts are remembered no more. Those words are in the Bible. Our sins and our lawless acts are remembered no more. Please don't fight me with those words. I didn't write them. They're in the word more than one place. God has delivered us from our sin. Jesus has taken our sin away and he remembers them no more. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, we find these words. Look at these words. For by one sacrifice, he has, it speaks of past tense, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I've said it before. I'll say it again. That is the scripture that I want written on the inside of my casket lid when I die. That scripture right there. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So that everybody that would walk by and look at my still body, their eyes will be drawn up to those words right then. They'll be encouraged by those words that by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So let's ask the question, what is the message from this scripture? What is the message it's trying to communicate to us? How do you read it? How does it minister to you? Here's what it's telling us, that Jesus' sacrifice was one for all. Jesus' sacrifice was all at once. And Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. I know that sounds a little confusing. Let me see if I can explain this, okay? When the Bible says that his sacrifice was one for all, what we see there is we see one man, one, it says, that's Christ, for all, that's humanity. But it's not just one man, it's not just humanity, it's one perfect man, one sinless man, one perfect man, and all sinful humanity. His sacrifice was one perfect man exchanged for all sinful humanity. I think we got the the best end of the deal, didn't we? Well, that might be arguable with Christ. Not only was his sacrifice one for all, but his sacrifice was all at once. We do not have a progressive salvation. We have a completed salvation. We have a complete redemption. We have a complete deliverance. We have a complete pardon. We have a complete righteousness. We have a complete holiness, friends, in Christ. Jesus gave us all at once Everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, he deposited into us when we were born again. We have a complete salvation, not a progressive salvation. Therefore, his sacrifice was all at once. Not only was his sacrifice one for all and all at once, but his sacrifice was once for all. And what do I mean by that? Jesus is not going to come and die again, friends. And you and I are not going to need to die again. It was one time for all eternity. That's why we can sing the scripture. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We do not need to die daily, friends. I know you say, Pastor Mark, those words are in the Bible. But when the Apostle Paul said those words that I die daily, what he was saying, literally, the interpretation is every morning when I get up, every day when I rise, I've already considered that I've already died. 
I've already died daily. He faced things that you and I may never ever face in this life, thank God. But he's already conceded, no matter what I face, I've already considered I'm a dead man, but I've risen again in Christ. That's why he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So Jesus' sacrifice was one for all, all at once, and once for all. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So this verse is telling us that he has made us perfect forever. And it uses the word those. Did you notice that? He has made perfect forever those. So let's ask the question, what or who is those? Well, I'm going to do a quick English lesson with you so we can drive home this point. We use the words this and that, and we use the words these and those. This and that is the singular version. These and those are the plural version of this and that. And we have a these and we have a those because there's two different uses for these and those. The pronoun these literally means something. It refers to things or a person that is up close. It is near you. I would say, these are my shoes because they're near me. But if they were on the other side of the room, I would say, those are my shoes. Do you see how that works? These and those describe something that's near. And when you say those, you are referring to something that's distant, something that is far away. I wouldn't see geese flying over my head and say, look at these geese. No, I would say, look at those geese. If my grandchildren were standing next to me and I was going to introduce them to somebody, I wouldn't say, those are my grandchildren. Why? Because they're near. I would say, these are my grandchildren. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those. He's literally saying that at one time, we were far from him. But because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to Christ. We are no longer distant from Christ. We are no longer far away. We have been brought near to Christ. So when God says that he's made perfect forever those, he's talking about a people, again, that was far from him at one time. But again, we have been brought near by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, under the old covenant, Israel was on a ladder that needed more rungs. You ever had a ladder like that? You got to the top of the ladder and you just couldn't hardly reach the distance. We used to have a church that we pastored in, in Beloit and that stepladder was, I would say, 12 foot, a 12 foot stepladder. And every once in a while, the lights would go out and, and guess who had to change that light bulb up there? And we had very high ceilings in that church. And I would do something I wouldn't do today, but I would get on the very top, not just the top step, but the very top of that ladder. And I would be swaying back and forth and I would take that globe off and I would be ever so careful and I would pull that light bulb up out of my pocket and I would put that new one in there as it was swinging and I would put this all back on there. Can you get the picture? I could barely reach it. I would be on my tippy toes to reach it. But Israel was like she was on a ladder and this ladder needed more rungs. She was on a staircase that ran out of steps before it reached its destination. She needed God more than she realized. And so it is today. People need God, but they attempt to climb their own ladder. And innately, they want to build their own stairway to heaven. Never realizing that the shed blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient. We are no longer far away. We have been brought near by his blood. If believers feel like they are distant or separated from God, and that's the way it works sometimes. It stems from a grand mall seizure of the mind that's been hijacked from old covenant ideology. That's all it is, friends. When you feel distant from God, when you feel separated from God, and I don't think there's a person under my voice, both here and abroad, that would say, yeah, I've never felt distant from God because there are times where we go through dry times. We feel a little distant. There are people, and I've talked to them, that have literally feel like they've disconnected from the power of God. They've disconnected from the grace of God. They've disconnected from the love of God. Friends, let me say it like the Holy Spirit said it to me. That's just a grand mall seizure, friends. That is not the reality. Your mind has been hijacked by a religion. It's been hijacked by an ideology that you have been programmed with, but I'm telling you emphatically that his blood brought us near to Christ. We are no longer far away from God. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see this truth in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 16. Look at these words. Therefore, remember that formerly 
you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Here's just two groups pointing fingers at one another, one thinking they're better than the other. And he said, you were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And then he says, without hope and without God in the world. Friends, if these scriptures ended right here, we'd be most miserable people, but they don't end here. There's a conjunction that's coming up and it's the conjunction, but look at the next words. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Didn't I tell you that? I told you you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, not by your good works. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He said, you who were once far away. In other words, he's not going to discount the fact that one time all of you guys were far away from me. He said, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. Two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside, look at these words, in his flesh. What did he set aside? Look at those words. What did he set aside in his flesh? The law with its commands and regulations. Please fix your eyes on that. This is what he had to set aside in order to destroy the barrier. Do you know what a barrier is? It's whatever you put between two people or two objects, a barrier, something that you can't get over, a dividing wall of hostility, he called it. He said, you were separated from me one time, but he said, I've destroyed that wall. I've destroyed that barrier, that wall of hostility, that barrier of hostility. How did I do that? He said, I set aside in my flesh, what? The law with its commandments and regulations. Continue, and it says this. His purpose. See, God always has a purpose, friends. He's always doing things. There's nothing random about God. We do things sometimes that are so random, but God is always thoughtful. He's always got our best in mind. And it says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. That's one new species, if you will. We are a new species in Christ. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. He's a new species in Christ. It says to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Aren't you glad you've got peace with God? You have peace with God, making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So important. He reconciled us through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I can see according to those scriptures at one time, you and I were without hope. I'm not going to argue that point. And without God, I'm not going to argue that point either. We were in the group that was considered those, the group that was far away from God. But now in Christ Jesus, we who were once far away have been brought near to Christ through his shed blood. In other words, the blood of Jesus Christ did away with our pitiful ladders. It did away with our stairways to heaven. Jesus became our one for all. He became our all at once and he became our once for all. Our perfection in Christ is based solely upon his shed blood on the cross. You can add nothing to his shed blood. His shed blood was sufficient. His sacrifice, what did it do? According to those scriptures in Ephesians, it destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, it calls it, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So let's ask the central question. What or who was made perfect? Let's ask that question. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, the Bible says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So let's ask the question, could the pronoun those be referring to the Mosaic law? Think about it. Just entertain it for a second. The Bible declares that the law is already perfect, converting the soul. It is perfect. But the perfect law made nothing perfect. That's the amazing thing. It's a perfect law, but yet it made no one perfect. 
It's kind of a brain teaser, isn't it? It's kind of a tongue twister almost to say, the perfect law made nothing perfect. Friends, let me tell you something. Believing that the law can make a person perfect is as silly as you going down to a local museum, an art museum, and then asking them to open up the display case that holds a perfect painting, and then taking that perfect painting and taking it to the nearby prison and taking that painting and rubbing that perfect painting on every single convict, every single inmate, and then poof, making them into perfect citizens. That's what it would be like to take the law and to rub it on our minds, to rub it on our hearts, to rub it on us. The law itself is perfect, but it made no one perfect. The law is perfect in the sense that it is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. But the law made no one perfect, including Israel. You see, you can rub the law on your skin all day long and your skin won't be any more radiant at the end of the day. In fact, you know what? You're going to have a new problem on your hand because your epidermis layer is probably going to be missing. It's going to if you just keep rubbing it. You can take the Ten Commandments out of the Bible. They're found in Exodus chapter 20 if you ever want to go look at them. You can take them out of the Bible and you can blend them into your next smoothie and drink them. And I'm telling you one thing, friends, you won't be any holier and you won't be any more righteous and you won't be any more saved than you were before you drank that concoction. I guarantee it won't make you any more perfect. Friends, if there was such a thing as a nutritional facts label for salvation, the Ten Commandments would not be one of the ingredients. The law has no nutritional value pertaining to our right standing or pertaining to our righteousness in Christ. Hear the words again, the law made nothing perfect. Friends, I'm beseeching you to let go of your religious teachings and your entrenched partiality to the law. It made no one perfect. It is by grace through faith that we are made perfect. Our perfection in Christ requires no additional help. It requires no additional ingredients. It is sufficient all by itself. His blood made it possible. In Psalm chapter 19 and verse 7, we find these words. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Go ahead and stare at that for a little while. Yes, it's true. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, scriptures like this can get us into trouble if we don't take them into context. You see, there's no argument that the law of the Lord is perfect. And I believe the law of the Lord can make you a better person in a sense. There's a lot of things that we can do to make ourselves better people. We can make ourselves a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better employee, a better neighbor, just a better person by not breaking God's laws. I get that. But we can't find salvation in observing and adhering to the law. Only the blood of Christ makes us perfect. We get eternal life through Christ. We don't get eternal life through the law. We get eternal life through a person, a perfect person. His name is Jesus. In other words, our perfection in Christ is not based on what we do. Our perfection in Christ is based upon Jesus's one for all, all at once, and once for all sacrifice on the cross. So in this Psalm 19, 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, I want you to park a ribbon right there in your mind for a second as we step over into the new covenant and we look with a magnifying glass unto a truth that would be found in what we would call our new covenant. The first one in Psalm 19:7 is written under an old covenant. Now I want you to see Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Look what it says. For the law made nothing perfect. I don't want to rush that point. Because I still find myself in debates with people who think that the law makes you perfect. I want you to read Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Those words are very emphatic. The law made nothing perfect. We find that same language in the book of Romans. We find that language other places in the New Testament. The law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did. See, now what did he just say there? He said, let me tell you something here. The law did not make anybody perfect. 
but the bringing in of a better hope. And what he's alluding to here is he's alluding to the new covenant. The bringing in of a better hope did, he said, by which we draw nigh unto God. Again, the law kept us at a distance. I mean, the people at the foot of Mount Sinai wouldn't even walk up the mountain with Moses when he invited them to come. They said, no, you go talk to God for us. We're afraid. You see, the problem sometimes in the church today is when they sin, they're afraid of God because now they feel like they're distanced themselves from God. Friends, that is never the case. We are always up close. We are always up close and personal. He lives on the inside of us. We can't distance ourselves from God. No matter where we go, there we are, and God is with us. Now, I want you to take those two scriptures. Let's lay them side by side. Psalm 19, verse 7, and Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. Let's look at them together. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And then look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. It says, but the law made nothing or no one perfect. So Psalm 19, 7 tells me that absolutely the law is perfect. But Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19 tells me that the law made nothing perfect. The perfect law cannot bring me the hope that brings rest. That is my whole point this morning. The perfect law, if we're trying to observe just the law instead of fixing our eyes on Christ. Did you notice that the New Testament says fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We fix our eyes not on the law. The law will condemn you. We fix our eyes on Christ. I know this is a hard thing for people. The perfect law cannot bring me the hope that brings rest. That's what I said. The writer of Hebrew speaks about a better hope, a hope that does not keep us at a distance, but brings us into a better covenant by which we draw nigh to God. You see, friends, as Gentiles, we were excluded from citizenship and we were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. We were without hope and we were without God. But now through Jesus, we not only have a hope, but we have a living hope. It's not, as I say, a wishing well hope. It is an it is well hope. There is a major difference. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 3 through 5, we find this living hope. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. A hope that's alive a hope that's vibrant, a hope that sings, a hope that inspires you, a hope that energizes you. Can you tell the difference rather than just, well, I hope so. We use that word all the time. Well, I hope so. You know, uh, you know God's going to get you out of this situation. Well, I, I sure hope so. No, the hope that we're talking about should be a hope that's got some fire on the inside of it. It's got some power on the inside of it. It's got some Jesus on the inside of it. It's got a hopeful bliss to it. This is the kind of hope he's talking about when he says it's a living hope. It's alive. And he says, he's birthed us into a living hope. This is the hope he's put on the inside of us. And so as we reach deep on the inside of us and extract that truth for every situation that we walk to, use it as a preventative, not just when you find yourself in a situation where you think, oh, I need some hope today. No, I rise every morning with this confident expectation of good things are going to happen to me today because I have a living hope that's working. It's alive on the inside of me. It says he has given us new birth into a living hope. How did it happen? It happened, it says right there, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where living hope comes from. You can't get it anywhere else. You have an intermittent hope. You have a wishing well hope, but you don't have a living hope. You don't have a constant hope apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So sometimes our hearts have to be drawn back to that reality when he first gave his life to us, that he resurrected a man on the inside of us. He gave birth. He put a living hope on the inside of us so he could energize us with this gift that he's given us. You love that? I love that, friends. He has given us new birth into a living hope. Man, knock that one right over the wall, man. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at what he says, though. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Look at what he says there. He says, I'm giving you an inheritance. But inheritances are fun. 
We celebrate the life of someone that has given us inheritance, but the inheritance he gives us is special. He says, it can never fade. It can never spoil. It can never get chipped. It can never get broken. He said, this is the inheritance I'm giving you. It can never do any of those things. Perish, spoil, or fade. And I love what he says. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You want to know why it's kept in heaven? Because you would lose it somewhere along the journey. You would break it. You'd handle it. You'd drop it. You'd something to it. He said, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Heaven is a safe place. No one ever breaks into heaven, friends. You can break into banks. You can break into Fort Knox. You can break into all kinds of things. No thief ever breaks into heaven. And he said, this inheritance that I've given you, and this inheritance is Christ. It's not a mansion on a hilltop somewhere. Come on, please. That is nothing. It's not just the gold streets of heaven and the crystal seas. The inheritance he's given us is eternal life. It's Christ himself. And he said, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith. I love that part. He said, through faith are shielded by God's power into the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that wonderful news? It's shielded by faith. We cannot let go of this faith, this faith that God has measured unto every man. Faith is an amazing substance, if you will. It carries us. We must never let go of faith when we go through troubling times. We must never succumb to the things that the world will succumb to. Why? Because we have an inheritance. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And this inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. Why? Because it's kept in heaven for us through God's power and the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So let me ask you a question because I know you're not going to get a chance to ask it. So let me ask this question. It's an obvious question. How can something absolutely perfect not make you perfect. I'm talking about the law now. How can something absolutely perfect not make you perfect? And as I was thinking yesterday, I thought, Lord, how can I explain that? And the Holy Spirit dropped this in my heart. He said this. He says, a perfect pen does not guarantee perfect penmanship. And I thought, wow, that's cool, Daddy. Is it then the pen's fault when a person cannot understand what has been written by another? It's not the pen's fault. You know, it would be laughable. I mean, it would be laughable if I was to walk back into Walmart and say, I'd like a refund for this pen. And the guy would say, well, what's the matter with the pen? I said, well, I wrote my wife a note with it. She didn't understand the note. I mean, he would scratch his head. That would be a quizzical look, wouldn't it? He'd go, wait a minute, let me see if I understand this. Did the pen run out of ink? No, it didn't run out of ink. Did it bleed somewhere? No, it didn't bleed. But she couldn't read the note. So I want a refund for that. It just would be so silly. Friends, the pen analogy helps us to understand how we can be perfect in our spirit, yet less than perfect in our behavior, less than perfect in our soul, if you will. Legible as can be in our inner man, illegible in our outer man. You see, the same pen that made a mess in one man's life and in one man's hand can be articulate and artistic in the hand of another. Different penmanship. You see, I always wondered this. Why do some people write so beautiful? You look at that and go, how did you learn how to write like that? You've seen people do this, right? I mean, I've got decent print. My cursive is okay. But some people, they just write and you go, how did you learn to write like that? There wasn't a separate class for that, was there? Because if there was, I missed it. How did you learn to write like that? Come on, are you with me? And then there's other people that write and you go, I don't understand what you're saying here. I've looked at notes in the margins of my own Bible that I haven't seen. I made notes and they're just scribbled in there. And I would look at them years later and I, I couldn't even read the words. I know I'm the one that wrote it. I wrote it in haste, and I'm like, I can't even read my own print. I do have decent print. What I'm saying is, if everybody from a child would have went through the same course and would have had all the same course corrections as they went, then our penmanships would look very, very similar. See, friends, that's why we're all over the place when it comes to the gospel, while we're all over the place when it comes to Jesus, is because everybody didn't go to the same course and there were not the course corrections over the years. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. Every time we shoot a rocket ship to the moon, do you know every 15 minutes we've got to make a course correction? Because if we don't, by the time it reached the moon, it would be thousands of miles to one side. You've got to keep making course corrections. And I love that about this gospel of grace. What it's done is it's corrected the course that I was on. I was on a course that saw myself as distant from daddy. I saw myself as far away from daddy when I wasn't acting exactly the way I thought I should be acting. But now through the gospel of grace, even in my less than perfect moments, I still see myself up close. I still see myself near him. I still see myself up close and personal to my father. And this is what he wants. He's not there to beat us up. He's not there to scold us. Yes, he will correct us, but he corrects us not with a belt. He corrects us with his word. He sent his word and his word healed us. His word corrects us. It's beautiful. Several years ago, you've heard my story. I've worked for a company called Curtis Mathis Television. I gave them the first 15 years of my life. And it wasn't long and they made me an account manager. Account manager is just a dressed up way to say repo man. And I got paid on a commission basis. And that means if my delinquency rate was very small, then I got paid more. For that reason, I wanted people to pay on time, right? And every day you would pull the delinquency cards, the people that had not paid on time, and it was just my job to follow up with them. And I found out that uh, there was a real easy way to control delinquency, and that just repossess everybody that's late. But it didn't take me very long to figure out if I do that, then we won't have any product out in the field. We won't be making any money at all. So I've got to learn some negotiation skills here. I've got to learn how to talk to people and convince them why they should be on time. And I'll never forget, this was about 30 years ago. I had this lady, she's an elderly lady. Her name was Desiree. And Desiree was always on time with her payment. She always made her payment on time. So I was pretty shocked on Monday morning to come in and find Desiree's ledger that said she hadn't paid on Saturday. I thought, this got to be a mistake. Desiree's always on time. I tried calls to Desiree, but no answer, no answer, no answer, no answer. A week went by. I think I went to her house, left the door knocker on there. No response. I kept calling and calling. Two or three weeks went by. I said, this is not like Desiree. And finally, I called one day and Desiree answered. I said, Desiree. She said, yeah. I said, Desiree, it's Mark. I know who you are. I said, Desiree, uh, you okay? Yeah. I said, I'm calling you because you're past due. You didn't make your payment three weeks ago, Desiree. And she said, I know. And I said to her, I said, Desiree, I need your help in solving this problem. Can you tell me why you haven't made your payment on time? She said, it's too hot. <laughs> and I, I, I did. I, for a second, I went, wow, I never heard that one before. I heard everything, friend. I said, it's too hot. She said, yeah, it's too hot. Come out, make payments. I said, Desiree. The heat does not excuse you from being on time. You got to make your payments, Desiree. What in the world is my point? My point is this. Good works are no substitute for salvation. And furthermore, grace is no excuse for living like the world. That's a hard statement. When I wrote that in my notes, I thought, Daddy, I really don't want to say those words. He said, you say them, son. Let me say them again. Good works are no substitute for salvation. And grace, the fact that you have the revelation of grace ringing in your heart, is no excuse for living like the world. We have been birthed, the Bible says, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living like the world will not undo your salvation. Why? Because our salvation is a finished. Come on. Help me out here. It's a finished. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that's right. It's a finished work. But living like the world, hear me now, hear my heart on this thing, but living like the world could prevent another man from being able to read the words that God has written upon our hearts. What words am I talking about? I'm talking about the words their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. He said, he's going to write them on our hearts. And if that's not what's flowing from our hearts, they can't see Papa. They can't see Daddy. And when you try to tell them that our sins and lawless deeds, he remembers no more, it's confusing to them. Friends, the heated moments of life 
do not lend opportunity for us to act irresponsible. We must never allow our strong-willed moments and our wrong-headed thinking and our flesh-headed behavior to define who we are in Christ. Our behavior is not who defines us. It's Christ who defines us. Our perfection in Christ defines who we really are. We are sons of God. We are daughters of God. We are His through Jesus' one for all, all at once, once for all, sacrifice on the cross. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The law is like a chauffeur in that it brings people to Christ. But the law has no power to save a man. Christ's blood is what saves the man. Only grace by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ can save a man. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 again. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let me ask you the question another way. What or who was made perfect? Could the pronoun those be referring to the Old Covenant? We know it's not the law. And the Old Covenant's bigger than just the law. It's 613 Jewish laws, including the Ten Commandments, but much broader than the law. Could the pronoun those be referring to the Old Covenant? Of course not. The Old Covenant was made obsolete. I don't know how we overlook that scripture, but the old covenant was made obsolete. Jesus didn't shed his precious blood to make the old covenant perfect. It was already perfect. And why would he do that and then render it obsolete? You know, that would be like me purchasing an, uh, an old rundown house and then pouring uh, blood, sweat, and tears into this old house to get this thing immaculate. Can you imagine that? To get it so beautified. And then when I was done, let's just tear it all down. That would make sense. Jesus came and he put in a new covenant so that he could make the old covenant, the first covenant, obsolete. I mean, you'd be considered mentally ill if you did that to a home. Old rundown home, all that work into it, and then when you were done, just tear it down. No, friends, the old covenant was already perfect. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, we find these words. Here's what Jeremiah said. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. This would be referring to Moses and the Israelites in the desert. He said, it won't be like that covenant. He said, this is going to be a new covenant. He said, it won't be like the one their ancestors had to deal with. He said, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Now watch these words. He said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I love these next words. This is Jeremiah. Come on. He's under an old covenant. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is Jeremiah writing these words. How could he write something like that? You see, he wrote something like this because these were the words given to him by the Spirit. The Bible says that men, holy men of God, were given words by the Spirit when they wrote the Bible. So they were given by the Spirit to the prophet Jeremiah. And under an old covenant mindset, Jeremiah couldn't possibly have understood what his pen was writing. He's like, what? I don't fully understand this. Kind of like me going back and reading my notes in my Bible sometimes. I don't fully understand what I was thinking. It meant something at the time, but it's gone. And so I don't know as though he could fully understand new covenant. They don't have a new covenant. All they've ever had is an old covenant. But when the writer of Hebrews came along, the same spirit, there's one spirit, friends. He reached all the way back into Jeremiah's book and he fulfilled that prophecy under a new covenant. Look what he says in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. He says this, 
But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now it's important. I don't want to rush this point here. This scripture is not telling us that the first covenant itself was less than perfect. Remember, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Faultless here refers to incomplete, not imperfect. Now, let me give you an example of that. If I was to get out a 10-foot stepladder, I could reach things that were 10 foot higher than I am tall. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But if the object that I was trying to reach was 20 feet above the stepladder, then my perfectly good stepladder is of no value to me. I would still fall short in my reach. Friends, there are people that are trying to make themselves taller through good works and strict adherence to the old covenant, never realizing that their perfection in Christ comes through the gifts of righteousness and the gifts of grace. He continues in Hebrews by saying this, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like Jeremiah talking again. That's because he's reaching back into Jeremiah and borrowing this language and says, I want you to see the fulfillment of what you said, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not going to see it in his days, but the writer of Hebrews has seen it. He said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Do you see how conditional the covenant was at one time? There was a lot of ifs in there. If you do this, then this. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then. Friends, it's not this way today. We are under a new covenant that is not based on conditions. I'm talking about our salvation now. Yes, we should pray, but I'm talking about our salvation. There are no if clauses in our salvation. It is a finished work. He said, you took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So the writer of Hebrews, who's under a new covenant, is reaching back and saying, yes, this is the way it used to be. I want to show you the way it is now. Continue, and he says this. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. He says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That's what Jeremiah said. He said, behold, the days are coming when the Lord's going to do this. And the writer of Hebrews says, it's done. We've already seen the fulfillment of this. Jesus has already been crucified. He's already birthed into us a living hope. It's already happened. He said, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then he says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Why? What is he saying? He said, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. You're not going to need a teacher in the way you used to under the old covenant. You're not going to need the rabbi like you used to under the old covenant. I'm going to put the teacher on the inside of you. You won't have to say, know the Lord. The spirit inside of you will bear witness that you know the Lord. I know him. He bears witness in my soul. And then he says these words. He says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Look at these words, friends, please. Take them home with you. Get yourself a doggy bag. Put them in there, would you? He says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. God can forget our sins. Why? Because Jesus' blood was sufficient. It took away our sins. And he deposited inside of us a living hope. He says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. In case you missed it, what I was talking about, he said, look, a new covenant. And then he says, he has made the first one obsolete. 
That's Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. Probably about my second favorite verse of the Bible. He has made the first one obsolete. The first what? First covenant. He's talking about covenants here. He has made the first one obsolete. He didn't just set it on a shelf. He didn't pack it in a hope chest. Maybe I'll need this again someday. Maybe I'll need to look at this someday. He didn't put it in a basement in a box. He made it obsolete. Friends, if something breaks down and you can't get parts for it, it's considered obsolete. Why hold on to it? He made the first covenant, the old covenant, obsolete, friends. And under this new covenant, he remembers our sins and our lawless deeds no more, the Bible says. And then he says, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And it did in those days. It vanished away as people began to get the revelation of the new covenant, as they began to get the revelation of what the apostles were teaching and proclaiming and what Paul came along and preached. They got the revelation of that and they no longer had to hold on to their old teddy bears. They could let go of them, friends. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 again. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let's ask the question again. What or who was made perfect? Could this pronoun those be referring to Jesus himself who was made perfect? Of course not. He is already perfect. He was perfect from day one. He was perfect when he went to the cross. He was perfect in the grave. He was perfect when he rose again. Jesus knew no sin. We see that truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, he knew no sin, but he was made to be sin so that in him we might become, we might be made, one version says, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We were made righteous in a perfect man. Remember, one perfect man, all sinful humanity. And we've been made perfect in Christ. Well, if Jesus' once for all sacrifice on the cross was not to make the Mosaic law perfect, or not to make the old covenant perfect, or not to make himself perfect, then what did his sacrifice make? perfect. Come on, not a trick question. Well, friends, that only leaves us. That only leaves you and me, us and we. The pronoun those in Hebrews 10, 14 is talking about us. He came to make us like himself. Perfect. We were not perfect before him. We are perfect in Christ. You see that? You see the heartbeat of scripture? He made us like him. We were like him when he started in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man and let us make him in our image and after our likeness. We were perfect like him at the time. But Adam lost it in the garden and Jesus would come back. He would go to the garden of Gethsemane and there he would pour out his soul before his father and he would say, Father, I'll go to the cross. And it would be on that hill called Golgotha where Jesus would hang between two criminals and there he would make us perfect because we were nailed to the cross with him. So beautiful. Hebrews chapter 10. I told you I would add the extra verses. Chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. It says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He says the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. I hope you're not taking sacrifices to God for your sin, friends. Do we continue to sin? Of course we do. We miss the mark, absolutely. But our sins are not counted against us. Why? Because Jesus' blood was sufficient. It's important to note that when the scriptures tell us that sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary, it means what it says, and it says what it means. Christ 
no longer has to sacrifice for sin. The high priest no longer has to sacrifice for sin. You and I no longer have to sacrifice for sin. If we think or we feel like we have to keep sacrifices for sin, then I have a question for you. Please answer this question for me, would you? If you feel like you still have to keep sacrificing for sin, how is the new covenant better than the old covenant? It's a great question, isn't it? If we have to keep sacrificing for sin, what is different about the new covenant? Because the old covenant was about sacrifice all the time, shedding of blood. You had to bring an animal, bull, goat, turtle dove, a pigeon, whatever it may be, a lamb. You had to keep bringing animals because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But Jesus would shed his blood once for all so that we wouldn't have to keep coming to sacrifice for sins. There would be no difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Jesus' blood is what makes our covenant better. Don't you see that? It's his blood. It's not our cooperation. It's his blood. Jesus' blood is what makes our covenant a one for all, all at once, once for all, sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus is and was and will forever be the perfect lamb of God. Always be the perfect lamb of God. Friends, the reason that this message is so vital, it's so important, is because condemnation hangs like stalactites from the ceiling of many hearts. I know this. A lifetime of poor doctrine and living under the world system has caused this callous. It's caused this buildup of condemnation. And the body of Christ, I get it, is not exempt from condemnation. We get attacks of it. We get fits of it. We are in bouts of condemnation. But inasmuch as vinegar is one of the most powerful cleansers and degreasers, likewise, the gospel of grace cuts through the stubborn stains of guilt, shame, fear, performance, condemnation, so that we might see ourselves in light of the new covenant of grace, friends, the covenant whereby grace is the very substance of our perfection in Christ. My last scriptures, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Yes, that's who he is. His name will be called Counselor. Yes, that's exactly what he is. His name will be called Mighty God. His name will be called Everlasting Father. His name will be called Prince of Peace. Aren't these wonderful adjectives? Describing our King Jesus, describing our Father. His name shall be called that. I love this next part. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. No end speaks of the eternal life of God. No end to it. Friends, we can put away our ladders and we can abandon our stairway to heaven and let's just believe the scriptures. Let's believe the word of God. We were the ones. We were those. We were the ones that he made perfect. According to those scriptures, our Father sent unto us a perfect child. Our Father gave unto us a perfect son. Our Father has deposited into us a bountiful increase. Our Father has imparted unto us a perfect peace. I love that it says a peace without end. The scriptures declare that the government shall be on his shoulder, not mine. What is it? It's a government of grace, a government whereby we are brought near to Christ, a government whereby he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, a government whereby he's compassionate to us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, a government that's full of compassion and thoughtfulness and sacrifice a government whereby we receive our perfection in Christ. Friends, the wonderful truths 
that reach out to us from this message today are these. The wallpaper of every human heart should reflect the finished work of the cross, the finished work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of grace. Our hearts should boldly announce our perfection in Christ. When someone sees us, just our very personification, just our very character, just our very words, they should be able to look at you and say, there's something so radically different about you. I may not be able to put a finger on it, but I can tell there's something so different about you. There's a light on the inside of you that I've not seen in many people. Our hearts should boldly radiate. They should boldly announce our perfection in Christ. We don't need ladders to make us taller, and we don't require fancy staircases to make us feel more important. We don't need this and that. We don't need these and those. We need Christ. Our salvation is not progressive. It is complete in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. A sacrifice that was one for all, all at once and once for all. I'm talking about the sacrifice that has given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Under the new covenant of grace, we are no longer far away from God. We have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We can never be separated from Christ. We can never again be excluded from citizenship in the family of God. We will never again be a foreigner to the covenants of promise. And we will never again be without hope and without God in the world. Friends, it's true. It's true. The law of the Lord is perfect. But the scriptures tell us that the law made nothing perfect. Only Jesus Christ could make us perfect. With a revelation of perfection, guess what? We have a better hope. I'm talking about a hope that does not disappoint us. I'm talking about a hope that brings rest. I'm talking about a hope that tells us that we are accepted in the beloved apart from our performance. I'm talking about a hope that burns our pitiful ladders and tears down our grand staircases. I'm talking about a hope that destroys the barriers, the dividing wall of hostility. I'm talking about a hope that has given us birth into even a better hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I'm talking about a hope by where we draw near to God. Friends, your grand mall seizure days are history. No longer will your minds be hijacked by old covenant theology and condemnation. You and me, we all have the mind of Christ. Let's exercise that mind of Christ. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Friends, it is through King Jesus that we discover that it has always been grace through faith whereby a man was made perfect. Our perfection in Christ is a finished work in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, I praise you and honor you. I thank you that Jesus finished the work. There is nothing I need to do to make myself more acceptable. You said, behold, the days are coming and they have come. You said, behold, the days are coming. Well, I will give you a new covenant. And it won't be like the one that you took the hands of our forefathers and led them out of Egypt. And Father, when they were disobedient to you, according to that covenant, they had to be punished. But not under this new covenant, Daddy. We thank you that in Christ we have been made perfect once for all. Daddy, I pray that the body of Christ would wake up to that reality that she has been made perfect. And even as the scripture said that my tongue is like the pen of a ready writer, Daddy, help us to see when our penmanship is less than perfect. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the pen. We can make course corrections. How? Not by just trying to make ourselves better, but we can make course corrections by looking into the mirror of Christ. And we can see him for his beauty. And as we allow this new covenant, this gospel of grace to come and drip in our heart and to saturate our hearts with these truths and graces, the Bible says that Jesus came by grace and truth. And as that becomes our reality, Daddy, we are pulled up, Daddy. Course corrections are made and that people can be able to see us, Daddy. And Father, when we have those heated moments of time, 
whether it be with a spouse or a child or a neighbor or a co-worker, whatever it may be, those moments of time do not define who we truly are in Christ. We have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I thank you for that, my daddy. I thank you for that, my father. This is our reality that you said, I'm going to give them a perfect child. I'm going to give them my son. And daddy, you said that the government would be on his shoulder. I don't have to carry the load. Jesus carried that load, daddy. And he did it perfectly, daddy. And then he sat down at your right hand and he seated us in heaven with him. And so, Father, I'm thankful for that. Let this be our truth. Let this be our reality. And let this ring in our hearts. Our perfection is in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.